And I think that's what banks don't spend enough time thinking about. They're trying to do better at what they have now. Banking has been and is at the moment. Rather than thinking, but you know what, the entire industry, they're open for disruption. And I think they're open for disruption in a pretty big way where they look at you know, some of the threats and opportunities in the market and where the players are coming from. Hello and welcome to the Fins of You. Today I'm with Elliot Lim. He is the CEO and co-founder of Cubed, who are the growth partner to fintech companies around the globe. Elliot, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Anastasia. Great to be here. So I want to go back in time slightly, if that's okay, and try and understand the journey of how you ended up starting Cubed in the first place. So it'd be really interesting if you can kind of tell us a little bit about how you started out in financial services and what your journey was to founding your own company. Sure, it's um, literally a rock and roll story. So by education, engineer, computer science degree, masters in software engineering. I then took the logical step of becoming a professional musician, which I think all computer engineers decided to want to do. It was a fun few years, made absolutely no money, made a lot of adventures, a lot of good stories for over a beer now, but living in a Living in a van with five sweaty friends is not the way to uh, take a long-term career. I literally worked out after that, what do I want to do with my life? And banking was interesting. I'd always had a mathematical brain, the computer science side of it. I think I was very lucky at the timing because IT was very much coming into you know, the floor around banking and those sorts of things. Pre the term fintech, right? A long-term time before that. So I went to work for several banks, Barclays, City, part of what is now Lloyd's Group. Lived in several countries, worked my way up through the tiers, ran in basically the technology side of things, did quite a bit of that. And then probably what now, 10, 15 years ago, decided to move more into the fintech, turned to what we call the dark side, but obviously now know as the light side. Worked for what was at the time Midas, now Finastra, ran their corporate banking business, then started a couple of my own companies, consultancies, fintech, and then some, some very random things like you know, a coffee shop was one of them. And I then had a company called Kobo, which is really the foundation of what Cube is today. That was Cloudless of Banking, very much an advisory to digital bank and to fintechs and how to scale. Exited that company, went to work for Mambu, joined Mambu when it was at around about 10 million revenue, left it when it was post to 100 million. Exceptional story, exceptional success. We had a great team, great people, great product. The founders were phenomenal. Investors were phenomenal. It was one of those amazing journeys where I thought, you know what? This is what life's all about. This is what we need to replicate everywhere else. So it's all we've done at Cobra, put it into Mambu. I then ended up working for Bidzai in Lisbon for a year and then founded Cubed end of last year, end of 2022. It was all about, hey, how do we grow predictable, scalable success, right? How do you actually make sure that that can grow as a fintech? And sort of using all the experience, the knowledge, the playbooks, the data model that I built previously, got to go with my co-founder, Pete, and we started the adventure. And to be honest with you, it's been probably the most interesting, exciting, and awesome 11 months to date of my life. Um, for those listeners that are thinking along the same lines as me, if we wanted to find the band that you're in on Spotify, what's the name and can we do it? You won't find it. It's pre-Spotify. I actually have some on my phone. So if anybody who ever bumps into me somewhere, I can show you. We've got some videos. I think there are some videos on YouTube. We were called Goop, G-O-O-P. But I think it's hard to find, which in some ways is probably quite good because 
my long red hair and semi-green dreadlock probably isn't really something that people want to see nowadays. I beg to differ, if only to keep everyone entertained. So how influenced were you by kind of the your early experience in banks? Like is Cubed more of a later stage kind of career extrapolation or is it has it been a linear journey to this stage, basically? What were the biggest inputs into where you are now? I wouldn't say it's linear, but I would say anything that I've done so far in my career is pointed to this moment. So if I look at working in banking, when I was in banking, one of the things I did was run innovation labs on a global basis for a couple of banks. I think now if I look back at myself, I probably class myself as a fintech assassin. In those days, it was a very different, okay? The, the term fintech didn't exist, but we would, we would do a couple of things. We would take small kits, bring them into the innovation labs, six months later, try and turn them into barriers. Okay, that's just not where they wanted to be. That wasn't the right answer. In terms of approach was we would invest into their company, but mean that they actually you can't work with anybody else. We will tie you in, you work with us, we take the IP, we kill you as a business, we kill innovation. And then the third and my personal favorite, which was quite a classic at the time and does still happen now, unfortunately, is I'll tell you what, come and work with us. We will do a POC with you for the next 12 months. We will help you burn all the cash you put into place. Hopefully we'll come up to a great adventure and we'll have this great, a lot of hope we'll put into you of how we drive your business forward. And then in 12 months, we'll tell you, actually, it's not going to work for us. Goodbye. And all of those things kill companies, kill hopes, kill dreams. And honestly, my big thing, and we'll, we'll probably come back to this several times, is killing innovation. I think the speed of innovation in the industry could be helped a hell of a lot. And that's one of the things Cubed really has out there, right? We believe that the way the industry works at the moment, example, the fact that 75% of venture investments fail is accepted as the normal, nonsense. That can't be the way that this, this is driven forward. It just doesn't work for anybody. And just to kind of hone in on that stat, like what is that because VCs don't care? They make too many, are they spraying the hose too wide? Or is it, what's your view about why I understand the return side of things, right? So for a VC, their fund will be to a large part returned by one or two outliers across the portfolio. But surely, I, I agree with you, it makes sense. If more of the portfolio succeeded, right, everyone wins. What do you think are the reasons why the, the failure rate is so high? No, we work with a lot of VCs. VCs are our main customers. So, you know, I'm not I'm not going to suddenly say the industry is completely broken, but I can tell you where I think the, the fundamental problems lie. The model doesn't need them to have a higher rate than 25% success. As you say, there'll be fund returners. And actually, a lot of them judge a lot of their investment by will this return our fund, which is great. And you always want all of them to have the highest return possible. There is a lack of due diligence in certain times. So, you know, you can look at the way they sometimes look at, at certain companies. They can invest and say, hey, look, the product looks great. They don't necessarily look at the GTM side of things. And there is certainly a challenge there. There's also a bit of a lemming mentality. It's like, hey, these guys invested, so we should invest. And they, that comes with an assumption that DD has been done pretty strongly upfront by anyone. And there is a company that sounds similar to this, did a similar thing and was the last generation was successful and got a you know, $5 billion valuation. Therefore, what's the next one? Oh, this looks similar. Let's jump into it. But I think that it comes back to the fact that one the financial model doesn't need to do more than the 25% success. And two, it's accepted as normal. And that's sort of where I struggle a little bit. And it's forget the return on investment, return on equity, forget the killing the dreams of entrepreneurs. You know, we all take knocks and we have to go back and not every company is going to make it. But we're accepting that it's normal for innovation to run at 25% of optimum. 
that's the one that keeps me awake at night and makes no sense to me because if we can quadruple, even triple the speed of innovation in the industry, imagine where we can get things to much, much quicker. And there, there are many other reasons behind it as well. You know, and I, I get it. It's not just the investment point. You look, when you look at board formations, you will generally start a company will have, you know, friends and family, advisors will come in, friends of friends, whatever it may be. You'll build a board, you'll do your first investment, probably an angel investor who's maybe going to be hands-off, could be hands-off, has some connections to get first customer. By the time you get to your seeing D round, and D rounds, you know, 2% is all we're talking at that point that still exists. 98% have already exited the building. You probably have a board that's constituents of investment bankers who have gone to work with VCs, come from a finance background, have the same model, metrics, KPIs, thought processes, and everything else. You have this complete undiversity of a board where they're not doing what I think is really important for board members. I think it's three things. One, they need to help you think. They need to help you build or they need to help you operate. If all they're doing is giving you money and just making sure that you can then go and no, hey, we'll trust you, here's some cash, go and build a business. That's not even part of the process. It's actually a huge part of the problem. There's a continuous cycle that you know, every stage you go from C to A to B to C, you go into a continuous funding and growth cycle. And there are so many breakpoints in each of those. And, I, and it comes back to a fundamental flaw, which is you know, founders, especially first-time founders, but actually founders of second, third, fourth, a lot of the time they wake up every single day with the biggest job they've ever had. And people don't think about that and they need help. And if the investors can't help them and they can't help them, what I said, you know, with the think, build and operate, then then what are they doing? And it's, you know, it's greed on every side. We said that the, you know, the VCs follow this, where do we think the biggest opportunity is? It's funding investors. But entrepreneurs do the same thing. Founders do the same thing. They will follow the biggest valuation, the biggest logo. Not necessarily as what is moving in my experience. Certainly, there's my experience, and I, I agree with what you're saying, is understanding, especially for first-time founders, I can imagine this is incredibly important, not quite understanding where and how you need to be at the next stage and what that inflection point looks like is half the battle, I guess, because the business is evolving so rapidly and the best one in the world, there's many, many metrics out there for different types of businesses. So understanding what the most important or understanding what the business needs to look like in two years' time and then being able to lean on someone to enable you to steer the ship in the right direction is the missing ingredient. I totally agree. So what? how does Cubed kind of work with businesses in that regard then? So we work with companies all the way from seed through to IPO, right? And arguably it's more complex as you get late stage, but there's a lot more education in the other stages. So like I said, there's this standardized funding cycle. We jump in anywhere along that. Even if you're bootstrapping, coming into your first funding round, you almost need to be bipolar as the founder CEO because you need to be thinking mindset to that next stage. So if you're in, let's take an example. If you're in a series A growth stage, you have your standard operating model. You need to make sure you're growing the business. You need to make sure you're in the right KPIs. We have a data model behind this, which we call the cube model. And we have a lot of playbooks around that. And when we really look at, hey, where are you on your trajectory? We use those metrics. We can rank status and predict where you're going to have problems towards sustainable, scalable growth. We then come all the way through that as the fantasy, you need to be thinking about your operational readiness for that Series B, you know, whether it's Series B or Series C. And you need to really think about how do we do that? How do we grow? And so we take you on the journey for how do you build the business? How do you operate it? But also on that 
how do you actually do that next range? How do you make that mindset shift? And you need to be in your operating at Series A mindset shift to funding at Series B in parallel. And so we work as operating partners. We roll our sleeves up. We get involved. We get very much into the, the weeds. We have a standardized model that we can look at and say, hey, are you doing X, Y, Zs? We're not consultants. We don't want to be confused with consultants. We're very much the first stage to be confused with consulting because we basically do a data analysis, look at where you're at and work out what needs to happen next. But we have you know, a platform that then allows us to show, hey, this has turned red. We now expect this could turn red and you need to do this. You know, Valuable insight. Here are the actions. And we're not just going to tell you the action. We're going to jump in there and do the action for you, with you, to teach you to fish rather than give you a fish. That's the first thing, still creating partners. We're also investors in early stage because we believe that there's not enough liquidity in that pre-seed, seed, soon day that can then drive into the growth. And the sooner you can put these models in place in a company, we believe that there is a lot more opportunity to get that predictable growth as it moves through the stages. And then we're connectors. So we also have you know, a huge network of people that we bring into our clients to fill some of their senior roles or mid-level roles. We have a lot of partnership agreements we can build out through the network. And also make sure you know connect with investors. We have a nice investment community. We work with some exceptional VCs. We know what we're looking for. And again, it comes back to your mindset. How you need to prepare. We can help you prepare for those raises because it's not rocket science. It's the same as everything, right? Once you've achieved this in a couple of unicorns, a couple of centaurs, and you started driving these models, it's never the same. But directionally, and you get that feeling for where need, things need to go and need to change. The fact that everybody that works at Cubed has been an operator or sat at, at sea level in unicorns and companies from startup, from seed all the way through, is our differentiator. And that's where we we really start to build relationships, drive businesses forward. And even our pricing model. Look, we do a we do a 50-50 share of the pricing model. We do take some cash because we think it's important we can pay the bills. But we limit the number of companies we work with because we take an equity share as well. We only work with companies we believe are going to succeed. And actually, our model is a lot. So... If you don't succeed, we actually don't make any money. We pay the bills, but we don't make what we could be making if we went and got a, you know, a real job. And if we invert the question slightly, because I think this is one of the most interesting aspects of company building, often helping founders realize what not to do at the wrong stage, because it can be a bit of a trap, let's say, at the early stage to think, oh, we need to look and act and feel like a Series D company in terms of formal processes. And you work on the operational process and it kind of puts this like rigidity within the organization at too early a stage. Is that something as well that you can kind of help customers, uh, your customers with, i.e. you do need to do that, but not yet. Do it in two rounds time or something. Yeah, and it's interesting, right? So there's, you don't need to do that now, but do think about it now, I think is the subtle difference I would change. So we can, we generally work in 12 overlying metrics, right, that we check. Now, anybody we go into from C through to series D, E, wherever it may be, we look at these 12 fundamentals and go, and it's interesting in C, and we do get in some fun conversations where we go, okay, what is your forecast accuracy? Like, we don't measure forecasting. We don't look at that. Well, you know what, from an early stage, you should, because how are you going to go and ask for investment or how are you going to go and prove your model out if you can't predict that? And it's what happens with a lot of early stage startups one of the things they don't measure is, hey, we've got product market fit. Well, if you look back, we see a lot of companies who they've got friends and family product market fit. They've got founder-led sales product market fit, but they've probably completely bastardized their code base and done everything for every single customer to make sure it fits into it, but it's not a real product market fit. So even forget looking at profitability of customer margin and everything else, 
Can you actually forecast based on where you are with your current pipeline, how you drive that forward? A lot of people say to me, hey, we're very early stage, we don't need that. Well, you do, because if you don't have that in place, then you actually don't have any efficiency, you can't scale, and you're not predictable, and therefore you're going to struggle to give your story about why you are where we are. And look, let's be brutal in the later stage, a lot of these customers, you're going to exit them. If you'll say, you're going to remove these customers, give them a bad experience, make sure that you lose all professionality, you have some a lot of pain to go through as well. So we really worry about that. But to answer your question around, do we say to people, hey, this is where you need to be, this is what you don't. As I said, our data model is called the cube model. You know, it looks like a Rubik's cube. When you get to sort of series A plus, right, it's a nine, you know, a nine by a nine by six model, and we can see it. We actually have nine different parts of the data model. Six of them are per stage. Three of them don't change no matter what stage you're in. So if you look at the economy, sentiment, and what we call personality, which some people could call culture. They don't really change, right? The economy is the economy. Sentiment in the market, you need to have the same sort of sentiment. And your company personality, it changes because it's generally founder-led and as you grow, you need to make it more you know, holistic. They're not such a massive thing. When you come into where you need strong people, strong market, strong products, you know, they change per A, B, C, and as you go through the different funding rounds. If you look at your financials, your revenue model, and your customers, they also change. And they need to be healthy. Now, when we come into a seed, that's going to be just nine data points. We're going to take those nine sets. When we come into a series A, it'll be a you know a four by six model of a cube, right? And then when we get into further, it will be the nine by six, like a Rubik's cube, which is that longer. Because with the first three, obviously, stay the same throughout. And so what we do is we make sure you think about what's going to be in the future. We don't need to think about it at the same level as complexity, maturity, or anything else. But actually, there is a straight line from your seed all the way, we will show you at the start what you need to look like at series A, B, C. And again, as I say, as you look at that funding cycle, that next stage readiness, you always need to be looking at that next tube model, that next playbook to see where you're going to grow to next. That was the whole bit of this model, actually, building it out to make sure you have, if you, I always picture it as steps, right? It's step up, it's called step up for a reason. Building up steps and each one of them, you've got this funding cycle of say, hey, we need to be operationally ready for funding. We prepare for funding. We pitch, we choose our investors, we choose the board, that's the funding cycle done. When you get into the growth cycle, you have a reset. You need to reset your people, your processes, your org, your tech. That's where you roll out the next playbook. That's how you've, you've taken that model up. You then come through and you make sure you've got the plan and then you get into execution mode. You measure, you adjust, you execute, you remeasure, take the KPIs, repeat until you jump into the next cycle. Getting that muscle memory, getting that cadence in place is hugely important. You know, like I said, around forecasting, we ask people to put forecast calls in even when they're bootstrapped. Honestly, we do it ourselves, and it's because it's what we've always done and how we work it. When it was just myself and my co-founder, Pete, we wouldn't have in our diaries every week, we'd have a forecast call. Might sound crazy. Every week, we would have a deal review call. Every week, we have a customer review call. Just the two of us. We both know all the information, but it's just good governance. And you'd be amazed how many little things come out of it. And we often throw ourselves in to early stage companies and say, yeah, okay, but you don't want to put it in place. Here are the 20 questions you have to answer when you're qualifying a customer to make sure it is the right deal for your company, not just you chasing cash. Nine times out of 10, it fails the test. And in really good founders, yeah, look, I'm a founder, you're a founder, right? We're all wired slightly differently just because we trade in this to do from a nine to five job, we take the 80 hour and it's something different and we have the ego and we have the drive, we have the king off and the vision. 
but we do need to listen. None of us know everything. We need to take advice. We need to understand how we drive the model forward. And we need to see where people have succeeded before. Honestly, I believe growth is completely predictable. And honestly, believe it's very, very easy to measure if everybody has the right attitude and you are willing to adjust quickly. Would it be an accurate description then to kind of describe it at the, the highest level as a growth operating system or something like that? Yeah, like I say, with the growth partners, growth partners of fintech, right? That's where we look at it. We want to help you grow, as we said, right? We want to increase the valuation of your company because if your company valuation increases, the small equity share we have in your company increases. And that's fundamental to our business model. So we are the growth cycle, growth partner built into a platform, which is also has our entire team, which have hundreds of years of scale up experience, making sure we can push that through. It's around... You know, if we are stuck in a company for five years, we will have failed because we actually want to go in there and help you get to that next cycle, but teach you how to adapt to these cycles. And we can then plug you into our platform and you can be, be on your own. We can be there for little bits, but we should fade away after a 12-month period because you should learn how to grow. It's the growing pains and going through the different cycles, but actually the model repeats itself. And um, I'd like to kind of move on to... I guess something specific to the fintech industry, really, in the sense that, and we'll get onto the tech aspect of it in the next section, but we'll focus on the fin. And by the fin, I mean, within fintech, because of the nature of the, the regulation, the big banks and the incumbent banks still loom large right across financial services. Because you've kind of worked inside these institutions, it would be very interesting, I think, to kind of get your view on how the big banks view fintech. You kind of touched on it slightly, but maybe you can expand on kind of the evolving nature of how banks look at fintech. Maybe, you, I mean, you, you touched on the historical context, right? Which was kill it if we can, or engage it to a degree, but not really commit to it. So yeah, just interested to, to hear your view about how they view fintech. It's a great question. Uh Honestly, it depends on the bank. It depends on the geography. It depends on the tier of bank. There are there is a much more collaborative way of working. You know, I said something a few years ago that got quoted quite a bit, which is like the things banks always used to move at speed of bank, which was a very slow way of doing it. FinTech's move very fast. In fact, I once went to I went to two events. I went to a board meeting in a tier one bank in the morning. Then I went to an open banking conference in the centre of London later in the afternoon. Not only was it that, you know, the mentality was different, I was wearing a suit in the bank office and then, you know, I was surrounded by people wearing shorts, jeans, t-shirts in the fintech side of things. It may sound stupid, but like that, I think that gap was closed, right? It, this That's become a lot more aligned. It may sound like irrelevant, but actually from a cultural point of view, it's huge. It gives you into the same way of thinking. Banks always used to run ecosystems instead of ecosystems. And once you get that ego-driven side of things comes back to the fintech and SaaS piece. Once you get to a point where you can have fair share of wallet, aligned outcomes, aligned values, the aligned tracking across the board, that becomes really interesting. That for me is a big step forward that the banks and the fintechs have taken and almost coming together in the middle. I also think that the underrated player in a lot of this is regulators. There are certain regulators around the board who really driven forward. You know, mass always gets plaudits in Singapore. You've got the Hong Kongs doing the same. Where I'm in the Middle East, ADGM in Abu Dhabi, DIFC. There's a lot of a lot of people driving innovation forward in a different way. And actually, I think it's a reason. And again, 
I'm going to upset people, but I think it's a reason that the US has been left behind and a bit clunky in a lot of this innovation side of things. I don't think they aligned on the regulators. Too many regulators there. Things are not aligned properly. Everything's too difficult. It's a really hard place to do business as a fintech, unless you're American, right? And then they become a very insular market that's finding very hard to go into the rest of the world. The back to your question now, where the banks are going. There are some banks doing a brilliant job. I think everybody is paying it not on lip service, but I would look at who actually is making this work. And you can look at where the probably the most interesting bit that happened in the last few years was the speedboat mentality. So a lot of banks were having sort of these smaller, almost test pilot areas for the technology to drive it through. A lot of them went out of business. Nobody actually worked out how to migrate the technology back into the other ship or to migrate the right customer segmentations across into the new technology and keep it happy and, and everybody moving forward. Because they struggled the same as the neobanks. They were not having the maturity of customers who trusted them. They didn't have that trust token on that way to drive forward, which I think is a fundamental change in the banking system. And we could, we'll come back to that when we get to the tech side of it. But the banks aren't still quite there. And I actually don't think it's the, the problem of the bankers anymore. It's actually the supporting functions. I know a lot of bankers still, and I work with a lot, and we, we connect the dots between banks and fintechs around the world. The biggest problem you always find is with things like procurement, where you know they don't move. They still move at the old speed of banks. They don't allow you to onboard quickly. They don't allow you to innovate. They don't allow you to A-B test. And I understand it's a regulated environment and everything that comes with it, and that's difficult, but there has to be ways to drive that. Again, coming back to driving innovation. The regulators, and again, I'll come back to mass, right? They did the hundreds fintech problems that could be fixed. Like, I wish everybody did that around the world. That's absolute genius to do those sort of things. To try and drive, hey, let's come and look for some solutions to some problems, rather than saying, hey, here's some cool technology. And there are still the problems that I said earlier, right? There are innovation labs around the world where people will go and sit in, so call them an incubator or an accelerator, whatever they want to call them. How much do they actually help those companies to really grow and drive the best part of their business? The banks still want to keep that innovation a little bit close to their chest. Very few of them are actually willing to try and help for the greater good, and I understand why. But that, to me, really has to change, which is where I think you know the tech side of this equation comes into it. Just from a strategy point of view, I guess we've seen a couple of, and you've touched on a couple, but a few ways that some of the banks kind of view fintech one could be as kind of let's call it the wait and see distribution channel model where they're able to potentially maybe we'll get onto this actually from, from a technology point in ty- inside of the banks not use almost fintech as a innovation channel for themselves and pick and choose should they wish to the ones that closely align with their internal strategy buy them and bolt them on as a separate product do you see that as kind of the best way forward or have you seen other strategies that work well? I'd, I don't think the bank buying is the best strategy ever, to be honest. I think it's probably the right strategy than the bank coming back to the you know the ecosystem versus the ecosystem. I think if you have, and look, it's a, it's a commercial marketplace. If you can go and buy the best technology that gives you a competitive advantage and you can be Bank X is providing service Y, then great. That makes perfect sense to you. And if you're you know, giving the right money to the founders, it may make sense to the founders, their investors, et cetera, as well. But coming back to driving the innovation in the market, it doesn't feel the right thing to do for me, which is why I think 
the future of banking needs to be looked at and where is banking going to be in 10, 15 years' time. Coming back to those trust tokens, what is the reason for a bank? So banks have always had high capital reserves. They've always been regulated, high trust tokens, somewhere safe to put your money, who can offer you certain services, not overly complex. you know. And I think I worked in the payment side of banking for quite a while. Everything in a bank starts and ends with payments. Very important side of the bank. But the banks really do anything particularly clever. There's nothing particularly groundbreaking what they do because it's a risk-weighted benefit, right? You don't want to take a risk. You want to make sure that you're making the right side of money. Now, if you can balance that innovation and see the fact that banks no longer have this advantage of having massive capital reserves, coming on to the tech companies, right? Tech companies have bigger capital reserves than some of the big players than some of the banks. You look at that trust token. Do the next generation of consumers trust the bank that their parents, grandparents trusted? Or do they trust some tech company? Do they trust, you know, do most consumers now of a young generation trust Amazon and Apple more than they will trust any of, you know, insert neighbors historic bank here? Of course they do. And so that's probably where they get the trust token. They're the same people who also have a massive capital reserve. So what does a bank become in the future? And I think that's what Banks don't spend enough time thinking about. They're trying to do better at what they have now. Maybe as a being is at the moment, rather than thinking, that you know what, in the entire industry, they're open for disruption. And I think they're open for disruption in a pretty big way where they look at you know, some of the threats and opportunities in the market and where the players are coming from. Just poking on the payments piece as a piece of the puzzle, um, the wider puzzle hit. I think the banks... Well, they were the gatekeepers, should we say, historically to all of the both domestic and international payment schemes. And there's been some degree of regulatory work to open that up to the fintech market, right? So you can connect directly to faster payments as a fintech now, which historically wasn't possible. Same same for SEPA. Um, do you see just specific to payments anywhere else that the regulator could potentially chisel away? Because, yeah, again, the banks, although they've lost some of the gatekeeping capabilities, they still are the big gatekeepers to the payments market, right? So yeah, just interested to hear your views there. Look, I think it's, that's a really good question. When was the last real innovation in payments, right? I mean, you can look at technology mechanisms with MT versus MX. What's the real benefit to the consumer? Absolutely none. When you look at open banking, there was a huge education point missing to the consumer with open banking. I think, you know, nobody really understood what it meant and it took quite a while to get people there. Intrigued what happens in the US and everywhere else where open banking suddenly becomes uh, another thing that people are opening up to. From a payments point of view in general, look, you can either do a, you can pay for things by cash, you can pay for things by a card, you can do a wire or a fast payment transfer. It's shifting money from A to B. Can they actually bring in some really interesting, cool things? Look, again, are we going to educate consumers around liquidity concentration and, you know, different payment mechanisms? I think actually if you could introduce, and this comes on to, this comes on to the big conversation where we're going to go down a big rabbit hole, the future of banking, right? Commoditized banking services where you could offer, as I said, I live in the Middle East. Islamic banking is a big growth market for all the banks. Very different way of working things, no interest, etc. But what about if I have you know, not a religious belief, but I have some sort of belief where take a standard one, right? Take I believe in in green banking. I want to make sure that you know eco-wise I'm doing the right thing and there's a carbon footprint that's low. Why can't I choose to have a payment routed through banks that have a low carbon footprint? Why can't I do things in a different way? Why don't I have a choice to pay 
differently for different things in different ways. There's something that matters to me. And like the commoditized banking, where every single banking product is available to everybody in the world, and then it returns to relationship banking, where the banking that Elliot has is completely different to the banking that Alistair has. Because we have different things, it could be where I do my banking. I might want to do it on my phone. I might want to go to, I may be a member of a members club in central London and want to go and sit in there and my bank and is in the same place and I can just do that over a, a cognac. You know, there could be a thousand different ways I want to do my banking, a thousand different services. I think it's not just purely payments, but I think that way of thinking and how do you offer me services that tick a lot more than what is my standard banking application? You know, there's been experiments with you know, insurance, you know, you can get better insurance premiums if you go to the gym more often or have a healthier diet. Or, now I wear a tracker. If you wear a track, you can link that. Why doesn't banking take all of these things into, you know, into concepts? There's been little bits of it, but nothing that really changes the game for me. And I do think the banking, I think somebody once said the, the last time the banking really innovated in something caused when they invented the ATM machine. And you know, that's quite a while ago. Then got into the credit cards, which was almost accidental with the sort of chaotic organizational pieces and different that. I just think we're we're missing again, it comes back to this burking in me or lack of innovation in the industry, coming back to if you're not driving innovation through having a higher level of success in the investments, do not have those more fintechs coming through, do not do something different, always following that same pattern of due diligence of we know this type of business is gonna be successful. Then it's just so asking to be disruptive and it's just got to happen. One of the things I think about, and not to get too much into a rabbit hole here, and just kind of, this is my own meanderings of a slightly kind of into the weeds fintech nerd, is about overall bank liquidity. I think if I just go back to payments, one of the things that I think holds the industry back is that the regulation, at least in the in the UK and Europe, from a fintech perspective, kind of is focused on capitalization of these businesses. And actually there's a liquidity aspect that can cause problems, i.e. you're not able to do what a bank can do, i.e. take that deposit and plonk it in the Nostrovostra account, for example, by the treasury team and use that liquidity to fund other people's payments. You know, fintechs have to park your customer funds and then not keep them safeguarded. The point I'm trying to make is the disassociation between bank and like system liquidity, in my view, would be an interesting one to explore because it's still very much, at least in my opinion, kind of parked with the big banks, either the, the ultimate providers of liquidity into the market, and they want to keep that in-house rather than out-house, which is a slightly abstract point, I'm afraid. But yeah, this is my own thoughts, basically, on potentially what's holding payments back. Yeah, and of course, that's a great one. Look, if... We could go down a massive rabbit hole around treasury management and market liquidity and we could literally go anywhere with this lot. So when you're looking at you know, all the pieces about not pegging to the US dollar anymore, the impact that will have on the global liquidity reserve, you look as you point, the big banks who are, even though the central banks who actually owns the majority of euros, the majority of dollars, the majority of it, with a couple of big banks. Everybody knows who those banks are. Everybody knows where it sits. I really, I think... It's almost like going to a casino. The banks still own that green double zero, right? They still have that additional bit of the bet that means the hat wins. Do you take it away from them? I think that one is very difficult and is a bigger conversation around where treasury on a global basis sits. And then we can get onto this whole conversation around crypto and centralization of cryptocurrency, central bank crypto and how that can be governed in a cross-border type manner and where that comes from a liquidity point of view. 
I honestly believe we're in, in maybe numbers of 10 years. Where we sit as banking sits today will be a completely different definition of what banking is in the future. I had an idea years ago in way banking. I worked for a, one of the large credit cards, merchant acquiring companies. And it was, we were running tech, especially when the contactless came out in the UK. You know, we were running, running tech on how contactless, where's the future of contactless? And it was all the, God, this is going back well over 10 years. I was like, okay, well, you could use it to open your hotel room when you check into a hotel. I mean, now you can. You can use your mobile phone when you on one of the schemes, you know, and you go to a major hotel thing and use it. But again, it's an example of the speed of innovation sort of stopped a little bit. And to be honest, the UK's way ahead. Contactless from a using your debit card and aligning into the schemes only just started opening up in the Netherlands months ago rather than years ago. It's not available in most countries in the world. And you think... That's a really interesting piece for me that when you got innovation, 10 years later, it's still not adopted on a global basis. Something very simple that allows you to go and do those sort of payments and align them into your day-to-day piece. And they were, they were pieces where, and I think it was in Poland, it was one of the major football clubs allowed you to use your back card as a season ticket to get in and go watch your game. You could then use it on the underground to get home. You could then use it to go and buy your burger at time, everything else, right? We sort of in that world where that works when you can go into a, you know, any shop around the world and you contactless payments, etc. But why is it not embedded into more things we do? Why are the banks not in that core? Is it the banks missed a trick in the same way they did with you know, supermarkets? Supermarkets were using bank data way before banks were using it. You know, banks were using credit cards, but the supermarkets were using that data, the same piece that the banks could have been where they had it first, they just never utilized it. And I, again, comes back to missing that innovation point and who's thinking differently. I would love to get people's opinion on what does a bank look like in 10, 15 years. And there's sort of just another point to that. I remember I was talking in, uh, I think it was Jayberg a few years ago, and it was a huge 40, 50 different banks and fintechs in the room. And I said, who here wants to share their innovation strategy and what it is they're working on this big that could make banking a better place for everyone. Everybody just laughed because nobody was going to give that differentiator from the market into there. And I still think we have that mentality where it's protectionism, ecosystem over ecosystem. And look, I'm not doing some hippie banking sell where we can go and drive this, but actually 90% of this is not going to differentiate as much as you think it is. And I think Pulling up innovation to drive through that growth is the bit we're really missing as an industry. And is that about understanding the customer and the transition towards financial services into those customer companies and pieces of software that understand the customer pain most? Or is it, yeah, it's about customer data, I guess, as well, because open banking kind of opens up what was an advantage to the banks, i.e. they had all this inf- interesting information to third parties as well, right? Yeah, but again, coming back to market education, consumer education, and that return to relationship banking piece, I don't see that there's been enough done. The banks and regulated, I put in open banking in place, right, for all the right reasons, make complete sense, right? PSD2 and everything else that's flown through was actually, I remember reading in the time thinking, wow, this is a huge step forward. This is where growth is going to come. But it was almost a miseducation, uneducation of consumers to understand what that meant to them and that way meant there was no demand for the new technology and new innovation therefore nobody really invested in it therefore those companies were not as successful as potentially they could have been therefore there was no second play blah 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 the customer centricity is 
You know, everybody's been saying customer-centric banking since I started working in banks, and that's always been how do you build that out? Single view of customer, and what do they really need? It's, I think it's probably been taken to a point where it works in large, heavy, multinational conglomerate banking, you know, high-end wealth management. Coming down, never really think it's taken. You know, certainly not on SME financing. The SME financing's been left way behind. And I think from a general consumer banking as well, it's not there in how you drive that. What they may have an understanding of consumers and be customer centric. What does that mean to them? What is the value you're giving to them? How do you communicate that value and how to deliver it? For me, that's that's a failure point in banking over the last 10, 15 years. Do you think as well that I guess take you and I, for example, if I was going to design the bank account that was perfect for me, it might look material well, it would look materially different just on a geographical basis, right? You're based in the Middle East, I'm based in the UK. I support Chelsea, you support Derby County, there we go. And kind of being able to almost rebundle these services that are unique to me is must be the future, right? But the banks will never operate in that. They're standardized to many people rather than customized to many people. They're never going to be able to offer that flexibility. But then to them, why? I think, again, it comes back to lack of innovation because why can't I? And look, coming back to us, right? We both work in the banking industry. We understand banking and Imagine take that extrapolation to somebody who has never worked in a bank, doesn't know anything, and is 80 years old, right? What bank, what do they need from their bank? It should be a lot easier than it is. I think we've just fallen behind. And again, comes back, and I'm a broken record, comes back to the fact we're not driving innovation fast enough. Because what is the logical reason we can't offer a real bespoke customer experience? You know, that real white glove experience that everybody should have. Again, we can do it for large multinational conglomerates. We can do it for wealth management, private banking. What's stopping that innovation, which isn't perfect in any way, but what is stopping that trickling down into the products that are for more mass market? And what's stopping that sort of driving it into the SME market? You fix the SME market in majority of countries, you fix a huge economic gap. You start to drive forward again, a lot of innovation. You bring massive credibility where there's been huge problems in the past. I think it's down to innovation driven by the fact that your cost base doesn't come down to that lower segmentation, which means that they can't be offered on a basis, right? I just, again, I just think it all comes back to the same thing, but it's come back to we're not moving fast enough because we're sticking with knowledge and what we know, right? People don't like change. I think as an industry, we talk about change, we talk about disruption, neobanks, disrupted standard banks, two things to that, the legacy bank. The first generation neobanks decided they were called neobanks, came out within 12 months, they had legacy systems, and guess what? They were legacy back. No real mover advantage. That next generation was more interesting, and you've got some beautiful poster child, stalling Monzo, everybody that comes through. Revenue gets mentioned a lot for different reasons, and they've got different offerings. But to, there were very few of them that actually take that real ownership of the customer journey, take what the bank's offering. Do you know what? Even when you look at it, the ones that are driving this forward, I'll throw Bonk in there as well. I instantly in the Netherlands, I think Bonk over a great bank there and then some, some really cool stuff. But is it really game changing? It shifts the dial a little bit, but does it, is it really innovative to a point where everything changes and banking is better? Is my life better for my bank? Again, another thing I remember... I just have it of throwing stupid questions or I do speaking events. And I sort of said, you know, hands off anybody who thinks that Amazon is 10 times better than the next online e-commerce company. This is going back 
10 years and everybody's hand shut up, Amazon was great at the time. And again, laughter when I asked, hands up anybody who thinks their bank is 10 times better than any other bank. Like, nobody, crickets. And these were bankers. Everybody knows that it's not where it needs to be. Why? Why are we not 10xing the innovation? Why are we not 10xing customer experience? Why are we not taking banks to where banking needs to be, not what banking is? The old, you know, overly quoted, in the future we will need banking, we won't need banks, you know, the Bill Gates thing. I 100% agree with that, but I actually don't even know if we want to call it banking. We need the ability to move money around financial services to be able to give us the ability to live our lives, to buy things, to spend, so. But the definition of what banking still is probably hasn't evolved that much in the last 150, 200 years. That's got to be making people ask questions. It's interesting as well. And it's a good segue into the kind of the final piece here, but software, I think we'll all agree over the last 10 years, specific to, let's say, the banking stack has evolved significantly. So if you look at a fintech these days, it's really an amalgamation of multiple service providers up and down the stack combined into a pretty user interface. And that's probably the same with um, slightly larger institutions. I don't know, the, the guys that would use a Mambu, for example, are they're not trying to do everything themselves. They are selecting best-in-class vendors and kind of connecting them together. From a kind of pure technology perspective, it feels as though, you know, we are in a different place than 10 years ago. And yet still, kind of the way that it's being done is not moving, which is a bit of a strange position to be in, I guess. Yeah, and look, Mambu has a great thing with what is called composable banking, right? Which is exactly what you're saying, right? Build the ecosystem around it and make sure be great at one thing and then work with other people who are great at one thing. And that gives you some really cool technology that's fast moving, fast to implement, very early value recognition, everything else comes with it. Because you know what, there's been other players that come to the market more recently, even in that world. And then where you, you see the things that are driving forward, you see that innovation doesn't stop. And that's great. Everybody talks about a third generation, fourth generation, whatever's next, fifth generation. It's It can drive there, but it still comes back to the underlying points that technology is evolving. It allows you to do things faster. It allows you to innovate faster. But because the banks can't technically innovate because they're still within this framework of what is banking and what is regulated and how does that drive. And Let's be honest, is it in the interest of banks to think outside the box and try and innovate at a certain level that almost destroys what is expected of banking? Probably not. Which is why, you know, coming back to the the fintech market is going pretty it's all driving forward and I think there's innovation, but still running at a third, a quarter of the pace it should be driven at. And because of the investments, the investment process, because of the regulators, because of actually who are you going to sell it to if it's not in the interest of the banks to move there? It comes back to the speedboat. That's why a lot of the speedboats fell. But there are other players coming from different angles, you know, like the big tech companies who actually could innovate and change what banking is. We may actually not realize it's different to banking. Again, I'll come back to Amazon, the SME ending point there where you can actually get really, really dense purpose of supply chain finance into you know, the dropshipping pieces. You have to look around how these things move to that next level and make an interest. Because that's a good one, right? Supply chain finance or trade finance in generally. Far too overly complex, far too many players in the system, far too overly engineered with a lot of invested players who aren't going to change it. Are the port authorities going to change it? Are the software vendors going to change it? Are the 
again, blockchain, things like that, they'll become the, hey, this is amazing. This is like complete distributed ledger, complete traceability of trade in this example and all the pieces. As soon as you start putting an overlay of different geographical regulators and everything else that comes with it, you speed that up. You lose all the benefits, the agility and driving forward. And it's, again, I think they've got to reinvent the game. I don't know the answer of how you reinvent it, but I just wish there was enough people sitting there. The first stage is accepting you've got a problem. I think there's not enough people going, hey, look, 75% of venture investments fail. 90% of scale-ups never make it past two years. Only 2% make it Series D. Innovation is at one quarter of where it should be. That's normal. Why? Why do we accept that's normal? What's the new normal? How do we fix that and all the other multitude of issues that are at a big picture, a problem to actually innovate in this industry, to drive forwards where technology can tempt it because the technology isn't the problem. The technology is there. It's the adoption, the market availability, and the sound pit to play in to actually start to drive what is next, what is new. Because again, I come back full circle. We work with a lot of investors, a lot of VCs. We speak to all the syntax. It's rare as hell that I see something brand new and something really interesting where I go, wow, there are better ways of doing it, faster, smarter, whatever it may be. But a real innovation driving something that's just sort of game-changing in a way that makes me go, whoa, didn't see that coming, doesn't happen. And that's on all of us, including me, you, and everybody else who works in this industry. Last question, and kind of building on what you just said, it's interesting that kind of the big tech companies, Apple aside, and that's a recent foray into kind of embedded farm. It would, at least in theory, seem a natural fit for Google, for example, to provide some sort of banking services to customers. One, one, because they have the global reach to be able to do it and the infrastructure behind it. And two, they are they, they have a lot of information about people, right? So they'd be able to make educated decisions. But there seems to be almost like two north, like a magnet repelling each other. So Google gets close to banking, Google gets repelled by banking. What do you think the reason is that kind of they've not, at least to the degree that was probably envisaged 10 years ago, kind of encroached into this space? I think there's a few reasons, right? I think regulation and everything we've said that comes with it make it less sexy and interesting. It almost goes into that, okay, well, there's thousands of different ways we can make money in it. I think this is probably not the way we should go. The incumbents, the bankers are powerful, right? We work in an industry that's full of very powerful people with very, very strong capability to influence things around the world. Do you really want to go and take them on? Probably not. That's the other side of it. There is also the, do you want to become regulated? You no, know, GE exited, you know, the credit card markets and all this other thing when there was all things about being fled and by the rest of the organization being regulated. You don't want to play that game. You can spin it off, et cetera, I guess. And do you know what? It's tough. I've sat here talking about how stood at the banking industry. I've been in banking for 25, 30 years, right? It's, I'm to blame as much as anybody else. I just want to make sure we fix it. And I don't have the answers. But I, I think if I was seeing it as Google or as even as Apple, right? Is that really where I want to spend my time fighting something that has strong incumbents, ridiculous regulation that means it's very hard for me to get a, a rung on the ladder? Very important, and again, say the obvious from an economic point of view, but from a, a trust point of view, they're getting pulled over the coals, the Googles, the Facebooks, and everybody at Apple for all sorts of reasons of privacy and everything else that comes with it. 
stop messing with people's finances and money and start seeing any sort of data leaks or anything else that comes with that. Is it worth the effort? Probably not. I think fixing it from the inside is the smart thing to do for banking because at some point a Google, a Amazon, a Apple will go and have a proper serious go at it and they will already have the capital reserves, the customer trust, the customer loyalty, and the capability from a technology point of view way beyond what the existing banking in most cases. And not only the legacy that comes with it. So it's a matter of time. And I think we either adapt, we adopt, or we just give up. And sometimes, honestly, the accepting some things I keep saying around the 75% of failure rates of venture investments, it almost feels like we give up half the time. That's what keeps you awake. Last question then, I know I've just said that, but this really is the last question. So two futures, let's call it centralized banking, where you know all of the very large platforms step into financial services as the future, or the opposite end of the continuum where infrastructure is built that enables a much more diverse set of providers providing services to people. Where do you see the more, more likely path? Look, in a, in a utopian future, I think, you know, you have a centralized model. You can never see it happening. There's too much global politics, money being made in all sorts of different ways that, again, probably will never educate the consumer on on some of the ways that people operate. I think the marketplace of marketplaces, that decentralized piece, actually is a pretty cool endpoint. And I do think that's the way it's going to go. Well, I can choose any product at a point in time, at a price that works for me, at a risk that works for me, that again, follows my religious or eco, whatever, whatever it is that's driving my decision-making process and is personalized to me and gives me comfort that I'm getting the service I understand that is right for me, depending on my banking education or everything else comes with it. That's a good answer. And I really hope we get to that. I want some way to really build those rails on those rails. Because the technologies is there. The time there's nothing new we need to develop from a technology point of view. I just think we've not innovated enough with the technology that is available. And again, it could come back to the regulatory piece. People just need to take a bit of a punt and make sure we can make this work. I mean, that's blase, right? It's not a punt. It's uh, people need to cover. People need to take what can happen seriously and drive something. I mean, our entire data model is a risk-based data model that we've got in place. Right? And we're using it to predict future scalability and predictability of a, of a fintech sector. Very much aligned the same model to where how debt capital markets use for lending and all those sort of things. Like they're always trying to predict the outcome of the successful business. We're in the same business. You want to do that on a global basis and predict economic growth and take the risks around economic stability on a regional, local and global scale. And delivering me the more service for me. It's a big undertaking. But I honestly think it has to happen. Or banking in 200 years will still be having the exact same conversation. Awesome. Elliot, thank you so much for speaking with us. Um, see you soon. Thanks, Alistair. Take care.